0: Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, and before we start the show, I wanted to ask you a favour. Here at The Economist, we're always thinking about ways we can improve our podcasts to give you, the listeners, more of what you enjoy. So we can do that. It would really help us if you'd fill out a short questionnaire, which you'll find at economist.com forward slash economist ask survey. The link is in the notes for this episode, and of course, we look forward to hearing your opinions. On February the 27th days after Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine, Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, addressed the Bundestag and declared the arrival of a historic turning point.
1: Wir erleben eine Zeitenwende. Und das bedeutet, die Welt danach ist nicht mehr dieselbe wie die Welt davor.
0: The vendor signalled the biggest overhaul in Germany's foreign and security policy since the end of the Second World War. The Chancellor promised that defence spending would rise, Ukraine would be supported to the hilt, and Russian gas supplies would be turned off. This was the dawn of a stronger, bolder and more determined Germany. But nine months after his much-applauded speech, and with the vendor yet to deliver... Mr. Scholz is showing that perhaps old habits die hard. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, will Germany succeed in transforming its foreign policy? My guest is Christoph Heusken, a veteran diplomat who spent years in the engine room of German politics. He joined the Foreign Service in 1980 and held postings in Chicago and in Brussels. From 2005 to 2017, he was Angela Merkel's chief foreign and security advisor. Later, Mr. Heusken served as Germany's ambassador to the United Nations, where he never shied away from taking his Russian and Chinese counterparts to task. Today, he chairs the Munich Security Conference. Christoph Heusken, welcome to The Economist Asks.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: It's nine months since uh, Chancellor Olaf Scholz announced major changes to Germany's defence and energy policy. That was dubbed the Titan vendor, the change in times. You've said you don't think this change has delivered yet. Why hasn't it? And has Olaf Scholz actually missed his shot at the Titan vendor?
1: It is a Seitenwende and whenever you have that in history, you have always in these situations a tendency of people to believe that, you know, in the past somehow it functioned and maybe You have some nostalgic feeling to the past and want to return there. So um, there are some hesitation in implementing this turn of times. And um, we see this reluctance. But overall, there is still this clear sentiment in in the country, also in politics, that since Putin's breach of civilization, that there is a a deep change and um, there's also the expectation that with regard to German politics, uh, things change. Some things are on track, but in some respect, we are a bit behind.
0: And you're right to point out that Seitenwender has that connotation of a turn, not just a change, but a turn, so away from something, towards something else. What do you think Germany really wants from its foreign and security policy that it needed to turn to get to?
1: The major change, of course, is our policy towards Russia you have to understand German history. Germany was responsible for 20 million people who died on the territory of what was the Soviet Union. You had Russia under Gorbachev agreeing to German reunification. So you have a feeling of guilt towards Russia. You have a feeling of gratitude. And these were feelings that were to a certain degree underlying German policy. We continued for a long time to believe that by maintaining a lot of trade, we could also change the country and we could be in a atmosphere of cooperation. And all this dramatically ended on the 24th of February. Policy towards Russia, at least to uh, Russia under Putin, cannot go back to where we were in the first place. We believed um, after the fall of the Iron Curtain, after we had German reunification, we would live in paradise. And we were very reluctant to spend enough money for our military, even after the first invasion of Ukraine in 2014, when the Wales Summit decided, and we agreed to it, uh, that we would spend 2% of our GDP for defence, we didn't implement it. So these are real turning points.
0: I just wanted to perhaps pause On what you reflect there about the Merkel era, and the former chancellor herself gave an interview to Spiegel magazine saying that she felt powerless against Vladimir Putin towards the end of her time in office, no longer able to influence him. And she said, I realised the only thing that mattered to him was power. Why do you think that she underestimated him, given that it wasn't really only since February of last year that that was pretty apparent?
1: I was a diplomatic advisor to the chancellor until 2017. And afterwards, I became ambassador to the United Nations. So I don't have this firsthand experience after 2017. I can only tell you that After uh, Russia became aggressive, when Putin started on his nationalistic track, that she uh, was on the phone with him very often. She got together the so-called Normandy format with the Ukrainian president Poroshenko, the French president Hollande, to actually do everything and succeed um, in bringing the aggression, the continuing aggression of Russia onto a diplomatic track.
0: You're thinking of the time of the Minsk uh, agreements after 2014. I wonder, given that uh, in your time or so as ambassador to the UN, you were known for often taking a tough stance when you needed to. You were a critic of the Nord Stream 2 uh, pipeline, for instance. But do you think that there was a time then in 2014... When you perhaps should have pushed Chancellor Merkel to take a stronger approach to Russia.
1: No, it was Germany that was pushing for tough sanctions in the European Union to get everybody on board. We um, worked very hard to get Russia to respect the Minsk agreement. So we did take a stronger line. And not mentioning Nord Stream 2, which was decided in 2015. This, of course, in retrospect, was... um, the wrong um, decision. Um, you know, the foreign policy aspects were clearly there, but you know there were other circumstances. Um, you are in a coalition. You have business. Um, you have the tradition that uh, Russia always delivered. So you, to a certain degree, fell into a trap. There you can explain it, but uh, not in retrospect excuse it.
0: Let's look at the energy implications. And one part of the Titan vendor is of course about ending dependence on Russian energy. Germany is set about doing that, building new LNG terminals, extending the life of nuclear power uh, reactors, and uh, perhaps uh, causing uh, more concern coal-fired plants. However, reluctantly, there is a cold and a harsh winter ahead. Could that derail the Titan vendor further?
1: I don't think so. What is happening in Ukraine when you can see how the people are suffering. I think the support for Ukraine will continue and there is no alternative but to turn away from Russia and look into the other direction. So we have to push for it that green energy is implemented and that all the bureaucratic hurdles are easier to overcome. So we have to push on the different tracks. You cannot go back to where we were before Russia invaded.
0: But it does bring up difficult questions, doesn't it, within the European Union and the differing abilities of countries to finance and protect their populations from the situations that then arise. And Germany's been criticized within the EU for making a unilateral decision to create a 200 billion euro fund, which does protect consumers to a large extent from higher energy prices. Now, some say that distorts the EU level playing field is Chancellor Scholz effectively choosing a Germany-first energy policy over a European one?
1: Well, what we see is that in, in all countries, people and governments, of course, see how they help their citizens uh, to overcome the challenge with higher energy prices. I think what should have been done uh, by the German government is before announcing this program, which you know our French friends also do by subsidizing certain products, and many countries do that, to go to Brussels first, to explain to the Commission, to explain also to fellow members of the European Council uh, what we are up to also to compare notes was what others do. So I think this is something that should be routine that countries when they take decisions that they discuss that also with their European allies in the European Union, uh, because after all, this is a family and a major decision in a family you share with everybody.
0: You mentioned that 2% pledge, 2% of GDP to go towards defence spending. This is a time when many NATO members are considering even raising that sum to 3%. Uh, In the Bundestag in German parliament last week, the opposition leader Friedrich Merz accused Chancellor Scholz of breaking A promise. And it does seem that Germany is taking a very long time to get towards delivering on that 2%. What's your view? What is holding it back?
1: I'm not sitting in the defence ministry. I just look a bit from the outside. And there, I must say, I'm a bit desperate. In 2014, at the Wales Summit, there was Chancellor Merkel, we had the Foreign Minister Steinmeier, Defense Minister von der Leyen, and they all said, yes, we agreed 2%. The budget for 23 was just put forward. We are still not at 2%. So, this is something where so far in the political decision making process, there are just not enough people pushing for it. What you hear a lot is that you cannot turn it around so quickly, you have to plan for it, you have to see where you place the orders and where you get the material, you cannot decide like this. But I must say it's very difficult to uh, explain this to citizens, to people outside, say, well, it's now nine years, you promised and you're still not there.
0: On Ukraine, in terms of practical steps that Germany is being asked to take, I mean, can you settle an argument here? Does Olaf Scholz want Ukraine to win the war?
1: No, I think it's very clear that Chancellor Scholz wants to support Zelensky, wants Ukraine to win this war, to reach its objectives. But at the same time, I I agree a bit with the criticism of the German government, while They are the third largest supporter in military terms. They are very, very strong in economic terms. And in Berlin alone, we host 100,000 Ukrainians. And uh, so what I remark is that the military support of Ukraine, I think we could do more. The former head of the U.S. Army in Europe, uh, General Ben Hodges, uh, clearly said he doesn't understand why Germany or the, those countries that have the leopard tank don't deliver the leopard tank, you know. Well,
0: I, I should just jump in to say we know this because we've just
1: interviewed General
0: Hodges on exactly this.
1: Yeah, I hope he said the same thing that I quoted him on.
0: I think you're pretty spot on with where he's coming from. I, I suppose the question that arises from that, in your own words, if NATO allies are sending heavy artillery and, and helicopters, notwithstanding the fact they can always be asked to do more, how long can Chancellor Scholz afford to stand on the side Guidelines while his counterparts are stepping up as we go into this crucial phase of the conflict for Ukraine.
1: President Steinmeier, actually on it at the Munich Security Conference, said that Germany has to assume more responsibility and has to take the lead and this is a typical example where i think that um, when the chance that we don't want to do it alone then why don't we have a uh, you know kind of consortium under the group that meets in rammstein and then agree let's see you know how many countries have how many leopard tanks how quickly can we train the ukrainians how quickly can we get them back in shape and this could be done I, i regret that we are still hesitant in doing this
0: there has been an expectation that the lessons from Russia will also affect China policy in Germany. It's something our Berlin Bureau have been writing about and reflecting on a lot in the past weeks. The coalition agreement promised a tough approach. The Greens are notable China hawks. But then Chancellor Scholz made that trip to Beijing at the start of November with a delegation of blue chip bosses in tow. And he was then criticised for continuing the more dovish business first policy. So what kind of China strategy do you think would work best for Germany?
1: First of all, I believe that it's important to remain in touch with China. I don't believe that this idea of decoupling makes any sense from an economic point of view. We need um, China also to be a partner in the resolution of many challenges this planet faces, from climate change, biodiversity, health issues, etc. So I think it's actually correct uh, to be in touch with China.
0: Well, that that's an interesting point. If you just just wouldn't mind me uh, interrupting briefly to ask you this, I think mean, you've said if faced with strong opposition, it's not impossible that China will conform. And if change through trade didn't work with Vladimir Putin, do you think something like that could still work with Xi Jinping? And if not, what's the alternative?
1: There is one big difference between China and Russia. Russia doesn't mind to be isolated and the votes in the General Assembly showed the isolation of Russia China has the ambition to become the next hegemon, to become the most important player that has a majority in the UN also in trying to rewrite the international rules. And therefore, if you get um, enough other countries to oppose China, then they may change their policy. So this is what I think we need to do much more, that we work in the global south. The um, Chinese have been extremely active and very effective in winning these countries over by investing a lot and by putting conditionality on their investment. So there, I think, is something where we have to work. We have to work hard with the global south. We have to invest much more in these countries. And there again, this is a part from my perspective of the Zeitenwende.
0: What about relations with allies in Europe? And how would you advise Chancellor Scholz to approach or possibly even repair some relationships uh, within Europe? The relationship between France and Germany looks more strained than it did. Uh, leaders of Poland and Latvia have expressed some frustration with the Ukraine policy. Where would you start? You're an Diplomat, you know how to mend fences when uh, others have broken them or perhaps just strains are a bit inherent in the times we're living through.
1: I can only tell you what the experience of the Merkel years were and there are some things you you have to always do and this is uh, first German-French relations this was the open secret of post-war Germany, from Chancellor Adenauer and uh, President de Gaulle, from Kohl and Mitterrand, and um, also Helmut Schmidt and Scardisda and Chancellor Merkel on all its initiatives. Whenever um, we entertained something, you know, she started to work either with Jacques Chirac, who was the first president, then with Sarkozy, Hollande, and Macron. So. Always have this close relationship before you go into the European Union, the European Council, you meet with your French counterpart and see that you are on the same or similar line. This is something you have to do from morning to night. Second, you have to invest a lot in personal contacts and uh, you have to talk to all the countries. And this is a lot of work, but it needs to be done. And this is what, um, you know, German secret was. Uh, Helmut Kohl always said it's so important that you look after the, the smaller countries also. And they're seeing from the outside and getting some remarks from old colleagues and, and friends in, in the countries that you mentioned that more could be done from the German side.
0: Right. But one big thing that's changed in that sense of sort of international dialogue, trialogue, multilogue, is that Russia is really out in the cold now. It's on the sidelines. And you announced that it would be banned from participating in next year's Munich Security Conference because you don't want to give a platform to its propaganda. You want opposition leaders to speak about the future of their country. And fair enough. But Vladimir Putin is still the man in the Kremlin. And a lot of those great German statesman that you referenced there, it was Chancellor kohl Helmut Schmidt-Willibrand, they did talk to Moscow, they did talk to their ideological opponents, even at the height of the Cold War. What's different?
1: What is different is that there is no longer any trust with Russia when you have a partner that um, signs a number of agreements and then violates them. I always quote the so-called Budapest Memorandum of 1994, where Russia solemnly guaranteed Ukraine's territorial integrity and and Ukraine was ready to give up the nuclear weapons on its territory. If they hadn't done that, there would be another uh, situation. And by the way, the Budapest memorandum, uh, Russia asked for it to become a document of the Security Council. And Sergei Lavrov was the UN ambassador who actually um, deposited this document to the Security Council. So why... Invite somebody to Munich who you know is a liar, who does not have any credibility, who would use it only to continue to spread lies. We are at the Munich Security Conference. We invite almost everybody. We want to have dialogue. We want to serve as a forum where also, you know, in the back rooms, people who usually don't talk to each other, but with somebody like Sergey Lavrov, who usually comes to to the Munich Security Conference, nobody trusts him, and therefore uh, we didn't see any sense in inviting him.
0: All in all, when you look at where we are in these long months since the Titan Vendor and everything that has happened in the desperate situation in Ukraine and the conduct of the war, do you think that Titan Vendor is here to stay? And also, I'm wondering, does it mean the same thing at the end of this year as it did? in those days uh, after February, when it seemed to be a new start for Germany and the world?
1: People will continue to support Ukraine, will continue the zeitenwende and not see to it, well, how can we cut corners and can we get Putin back? No, this will not happen. It demands political leadership. Sometimes I think our leaders underestimate the readiness of population to fight and contribute to this fight against this cruelty, this breach of civilization committed by Putin. This is what I'm sure will happen. Germany has to take its part. So I'm optimistic that we will continue with the Zeitenwende, with the support, I believe, also in the German people and I I believe in, in the European Union with our values that made Europe what we are today, and this is something that we want to continue on to build on.
0: Christoph Häusken, thank you very much indeed for joining us.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: And do let us know what you think. Will Olaf Scholz deliver the and vendor? Write to us at podcasteconomist.com or you can tweet us at The Economist. Many thanks to those of you who sent comments on last week's episode with Ben Hodges, a former commander of the US Army Europe, about how he thinks Ukraine can win the war. We enjoyed reading them all, especially the emails from Caroline Ann Walker, who mulled over Joe Biden's war aims, and Albert Reeling, who pondered whether the West could pursue a strategy of containment if Vladimir Putin clings onto power. If you've not listened to that episode, you'll find it wherever you get your podcasts. And on our website this week, you can read more on Germany's assessment of Angela Merkel's legacy. But you will need to be a subscriber to read that article. And if you're not, well, why not sign up today? We have a special introductory offer just for our listeners. Visit economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell, and the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.
1: Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time.